Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to start a new series. And uh, as always, and I make no apologies for this, I do not plan my series out in advance, which means I don't know how long this series will go. Will it be two weeks? Will it be a few weeks? Will it be many more weeks? I don't know. And uh, we'll just see how long I go on it. But I want to preach a series on the Old Testament and how we understand it. I don't, uh, I don't even have a title for the series yet. We'll figure that out as we go along. Um, but I want to talk about the Old Testament. Now, I did a series on the Old Testament, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago when we were, before we were in this auditorium. And uh, the fact of the matter is that my preaching just isn't good enough that most of you who were here for that, don't remember it, uh, judging by all the questions I continue to get. And plus, on top, in addition to that, we have many new people here as well. I think it's really vital. It is vital. I feel stirred about it in my spirit that we have an understanding of the Old Testament, and there's a number of different reasons. The first reason is that um, is an apologetic uh, reason, and that is that many of the attacks on our faith that are happening in the culture right now are happening exactly about the Old Testament. And so people are making all kinds of accusations against Christianity, against the Bible, and against our God um, because of things they find in the Old Testament. So for example, uh, I think it might have been a year ago or two years ago, someone sent me, uh, I think it's more like a year, but someone sent me an article from CNN. So that's a big news, uh, news site, obviously. And it was an editorial. And in this editorial, this person was pulling uh, verses out of the Old Testament and comparing the Old Testament to the Quran and saying, you Christians are hypocrites. Uh, you say that Islam is a, is a religion of violence. And then he pulls out a few verses out of the Old Testament. He says, the Old Testament is just as bad. And lots of other people are making all kinds of attacks. You Christians are hypocrites. You say you, you, uh, you follow the laws about sexual morality, and in particular homosexuality is the hot-button topic these days. You follow that one, but then the Bible says that slavery is okay, and you don't follow that one, so you're a bunch of hypocrites. And they look all over in the Old Testament, they find all kinds of things, the treatment of, of women, and, uh, and some of the stuff uh, with the violence, and some of the stuff with some of the weird laws and those sorts of things. And lots of Christians don't know how to defend it. In fact, I know of people in this community that left their faith. And of course, whatever they cite, there's usually other bigger issues going on in the background. But many, in almost every case, the ones I know in this community, they cite things from the Old Testament. This is part of the reason why I left my faith. So there's an apologetic reason in terms of people are asking questions about the Old Testament, and many of us are not equipped to answer those. But then there's a second reason that's just as important, but it goes into the church, and the fact is that because so many Christians have been unable to answer adequately or discern uh, the Old Testament or understand what it's there for, many, and you would not believe some of the conversations I've had over the last month, there are not just whole churches, but whole conferences of churches in our country and across the West who are basically throwing out the entire Bible because they don't feel there are answers to those things. And so they look at it and they say, well, we, we follow this law, but we don't follow that law. That is hypocritical. And they agree with the world in that. So what they do then is they literally throw out the whole Old Testament. There are, I, I know this. And there are actual conferences of churches. They are essentially throwing out the entire Old Testament. Now, the only thing is, and they don't even realize this when they do it. When you throw out the Old Testament, you actually throw out a gigantic swath of the New Testament because the New Testament is founded on the Old. The two go hand in hand, and the New Testament writers would have been horrified that there could be anything called a church that would throw out the Old Testament. That was their scriptures. 
And that was their faith, and that is our faith today. And so, of course, and then there's a third reason, which is just uh, purely devotional. This is God's word, and it's God's breathed words and inspired words, and we're going to see some scriptures for that today. And yet we read it. Many of us want to avoid it. Many of us don't know what to do with it. And so how do we become mature in handling the word of God? Amen? How do we become mature? Because I believe it's absolutely vital in these days. If we're going to stand strong against deception, more and more this is what I'm seeing. And, and we're seeing it all over the church around the world. There is a gigantic falling away happening. And many churches are leaving the, tr- the, the faith as it has been handed down to us for 2,000 years. But wherever there is a falling away, you will always see something first. And that is, first of all, a weakening in our reverence and in the upholding of the authority of Scripture. So there is something about this book, these God-breathed words. If we will be in this book, it will do something to us that will keep us strong. It will keep us from deception. It will keep us strong. It does something in our character. It does something in our hearts. We absolutely need God's word. Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil, Jesus quoted scripture. If Jesus, and by the way, he didn't quote the New Testament. It wasn't around yet. He quoted the Old Testament. And if Jesus needed to quote the Old Testament in order to stand strong against the devil, how much more do you and me need it? Amen? Amen. So we're going to pray. I'm going to start today. I'm going to start. We're going to take a few minutes, and I'm just going to give you, uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you an overview of the entire Old Testament. And then after that, we're going to look into some of the laws. We're going to begin to work our way through. Over the course of this series, we'll look at issues of slavery and, uh, and the issue of women in the Old Testament and how they're treated and all that sort of stuff. We're going to answer all the big questions. So, um, but that's going to take some time to get there. But let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, I just want to lift up your name today. We want to give you glory. We want to stand strong as a church and as a people for you until the end. And Lord, I just believe you have given us your word and we want to submit to it. We want to submit to the authority you've invested in it and we want to grow in our maturity and discernment here at this church to stand as a light for you standing on the foundation of your word. So I just pray by your Holy Spirit that you would root out compromise and fear and discouragement and that we would come out of this message and this weekend and this series, Lord Jesus, standing stronger than ever before by the power of your spirit. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's do a quick tour of the Old Testament to start. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And how are they organized? How did we come to have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, and on all the way to the end there, uh, Malachi before the New Testament? And the, the, the Old Testament is grouped not chronologically. Well, within the sections, they're chronological. But as a whole, it's not, it's not organized chronologically. It's organized by kind of book. Okay, so there's four kinds of books. I'll just tell them to you and then we'll work through. Ken's on PowerPoint today, so I'm going to be jumping around. But there's, there's the books of the law, then there's the historical books, then there's the, the Psalms and the wisdom literature, and then there's the prophets. They're grouped into groupings, kinds. Okay, so the first five books of the Bible are what are called the books of the law. They are the books that Moses wrote. Okay, now they're called the law because, you know, you know all the laws of the Old Testament are found in the law. Okay, but they're much more than just law. There's a lot of history here too. In Genesis, we get the history from creation up through uh, Abraham and then to Joseph and, and, uh, and the brothers going into Egypt. Okay, and then in Exodus, we get the history of the Israelites being brought out of Egypt. So in the books of the law, we have the laws, yes. When we get to Leviticus, we got lots and lots of laws, sacrificial laws, those sorts of things, and we'll talk about those in this series. Um, but, so there are laws, but it's lots of history. It takes us the history from creation in these five books up to the Israelites being brought out of 
Egypt, into and then out of Egypt, okay? Then the next grouping of books is a group of 12 books called the historical books, okay? In your Old Testament, these are the historical books, and there's 12 of them. The first three books, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, pick up right where the story of the, the first five books leave off, which is when the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. Uh, these three books now talk about the period of time when the Israelites are moving into the Promised Land and conquering the Promised Land, Okay? That's what these books are, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then the next set of books, we've got a set of six books in the historical books, which is the history of the kings, okay? So 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. These books pick up from the conquest of the land. So the books of the law take us from creation to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Then, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth tell us about the, the conquering of the promised land. And then the next set of six books gives us the history of the kings, so from Saul and David and Solomon and Rehoboam all the way down to the end of the kings, which is when the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and conquer Jerusalem and take them into exile. So lots of history there. And these are our fun books to read because we like to read stories, right? The next period of time is the Babylonian exile itself after Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. After that point, there are no more Israel, Israelite kings uh, in history. But then there's 70 years of exile. Now, there's actually no historical books written during the time of the exile, but there are three prophetic books. So I've put them there in brackets. These don't count towards the 12. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are not included right after. For instance, Chronicles, they're, they're included with the prophetic books. The only reason I put them there is I think it'll help you to understand just a little bit more. Uh, so many people, when you read the Old Testament, you don't know what, you don't know what you're reading. So you're devotionally you're reading Jeremiah, and you think he's speaking about some random thing. And then you read Daniel, and you think he's speaking about some other random thing. You don't know when did he write, what is he writing about. You read Ezekiel, you don't know what he's writing about. Uh, so just a little bit, sometimes when you see the, the time period when they're writing, you know, you know uh, what's a little bit more of what's going on. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all lived at the same time. So they're prophesying at the same period of time. This is all happening during the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah started his ministry first. He was uh, prophesying a number of years before the Babylonians came and took the Israelites into, into exile. And he was, so a bunch of his book is prophesying, uh, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Then the Babylonians came and his prophecies came true. And the Babylonians come and they take Israel into exile. Jeremiah doesn't die there. He doesn't get taken into exile. He gets left behind and he continues in his book prophesying to the people who are left behind. Meanwhile, at the very same time he's prophesying to the people who are left behind, Daniel gets taken into exile into Babylon when he's just a young boy, very young. He spends his entire life in exile in Babylon. So he's prophesying at the same time that Jeremiah prophesied the doom to come, and then afterwards he's prophesying to the, to the people who are left behind. Daniel gets taken into exile, and he spends his whole life in the palaces of the kings, of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kings, and then even up until the times of the Persians, he spends his whole time as an exile in those palaces, and he's prophesying from that place at the same time as Jeremiah, and at the same time as Ezekiel. It's amazing how God puts people in different places and how it all works. Daniel goes right into the halls of power and prophesies from there and doesn't compromise. Ezekiel is, goes in, Jeremiah is left behind and prophesies from there. Ezekiel gets brought into exile, but not into the places of power. He's with the other Jewish exiles, and he's prophesying to them. One of the main messages of the book of Ezekiel is when the Jews went into exile, there was a bunch of, of uh, faith speakers or positive thinking preachers, and they were telling the Jews, don't settle down. 
Uh, you're going to be sent home. Just have faith. We're going back to Jerusalem. God's going to rescue us. And so, so don't build homes. Don't get comfortable. We're going right back. Ezekiel's message is absolutely not. This judgment is from God, and it's going to play out to the full. So get comfortable here in Babylon. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, they're all at the same time. All right, so that's the Babylonian exile. Right after the exile, we have the last of the historical books which tell the time period after Cyrus, uh, you know, takes over from the Babylonians, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. We have this period of rebuilding of Jerusalem, the temple. And so these are the last of the historical books in the Old Testament, which is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which is all during this 49-year uh, time period as Jerusalem and the temple are being rebuilt. Okay, so that's the, we got the books of the law, the first five books. Then we've got the 12 historical books, which does not include Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but I just put those in there in brackets to show you where they are. Um, the next set of books in the Bible are the Psalms and the wisdom literature, which is six books, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Some people count them as five books. They don't count Lamentations in there. People don't really know what to do with Lamentations. In our Bibles, Lamentations is included with the prophets. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I included a number of commentators, include it more with the wisdom literature because it's poetry. It's probably written by Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied that Jerusalem would fall. Lamentations is most likely, we, we don't know for sure because it's not, it's not explicitly named, but church tradition tells us it was Jeremiah. And uh, it's Jeremiah lamenting. He prophesied Jer Jerusalem would fall, but he wasn't happy when it fell. And he laments the destruction in, uh, in, in poetry and stuff there. So that's the Psalms and the wisdom literature. And of course, that's a very different kind of writing than the historical books. The historical books, you read like a story. They're kind of fun. When you get to the Psalms, you don't read them like a story. They're prayers. They give, us, they give us things that connect with our emotions. There's prayers there for when you're angry and prayers when you're sad and prayers when you're afraid. And in the book of Proverbs, there's lots of practical advice. Like I can barely get through a chapter, you've gotten so much advice. Uh, and it's really a lot of common sense, Holy Spirit-filled common sense. And of course, Song of Solomon is something you should only read when you're married, all right? And then, um, and after that, it's a wonderful book to read often. But anyway, that's the old outline of the Old Testament. It's 39 books. Okay, now the next section of books, the last section of books in the Old Testament is the prophets, the last 16 books, or 17 if you include Lamentations in there. Um, but anyway, the, the major prophets, which is four books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, they're not called major because they're more important. They're called major because, first of all, they're a lot longer. And they cover a broader a variety of topics. The minor prophets are very short. Some of them are only a page long in my Bible. And they usually cover something, a very narrow bandwidth of topic. They usually just cover, you know, visions of the last day when God comes back to judge the earth. Something like that. Whereas the major prophets cover a wide swath. Like Isaiah covers all kinds of things. From the day of the Lord, he covers prophecies about other nations. He has prophecies about the coming kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, and, and the Messiah, and all these sorts of things. The major prophets cover a wide a uh, broad spectrum of topics. And uh, touching on other countries, the minor prophets are much shorter and touch on a much more uh, narrow bandwidth, okay? So uh, that's an outline. That's a very quick overview of the uh, Old Testament. Obviously, it's not very thorough. I can't give you a thorough one in just uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but that's an outline just to help you a little bit with your understanding of the Old Testament as you read through it. Now, the question is, now when we do open up our Bibles and begin to read through it, uh, how are we to understand it? Okay, so I've just given you an overview, and then we all kind of get pumped up. Okay, well, that's kind of easy to understand, and then you actually start to read it. And you come across passages like Exodus 23, verse 19, and it says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
So I guess that's easy for me to apply. I just, I just won't do it. Maybe mark that down and put it on the fridge just so I don't forget. Um, like what, do we, what do we do? So devotionally, and this is, you know, this is one of the things. Uh, we don't know what to do. We don't know sometimes what to do with the Old Testament. We know it's, when we come to church, of course, very solemn. Oh, God's word, yes. Very important. The most important book in the world. But then we actually open it up for our devotions, and you're a stay-at-home mom maybe, and you've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old screaming in the background. You want help how to get rid of the tantrum. Okay, without killing someone, right? And then you read, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and you're trying to apply that. Well, I guess I won't kill them. Um, right? How, how don't we want practical application? Okay? And let me tell you something about the, the Old Testament, well, the, the Bible in general. See, and we, again, we'll say when we come to church it's God's word, but really for many of us, we'd rather, rather read a good book because give me a book that, that helps me in my marriage right now. Give me a book that helps me in my finances right now. Give me a book that's going to help me be a better me. That's really what a lot of us want to be. Give me a book that's going to help me be more successful in my relationships. It's going to help me be happier, all these sorts of things. Did you know this book is not that book? There's a lot of Christians out there with big, really big smiles on the cover of their books, and, I'm, and I bless them for their big smiles. But there's a lot of Christians out there that are selling how to be a better you. This book is not that book. This book is a totally different book. It really ultimately isn't about you and me. It's about God. And it's only about you and me in a sense of when we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to it, how we fit into his plan. This book is not all that concerned with giving you five steps today to have an easier life. But you know what? In a, in, in a long run of eternity, what do we actually need? We need this book a lot more than the other ones. And especially in a culture of Facebook and constant entertainment and media stimulation. Our souls are desperate for some real food. And yes, there are some hard nuggets to crack in here, but I'm going to show you some promises in just a moment that those who love these words and take in these words over the course of years, this is the book that will change your life. And so, of course, there's, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and what do we do, things, what do, we do with laws like that? Well, uh, you know, there's other ones too. Ken, I'm going to skip over Deuteronomy 22 and 22. Let's go, because this has bigger implications than just boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. I could have shown you other examples of strange laws, but uh, it has bigger implications because it's not just strange laws. Some of them go into things that we find uh, really offensive. So laws like Leviticus 25, 44 to 45, which I alluded to before, is an Old Testament law about slavery, for example, and it says here, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves. Now that is offensive right there. To every one of us here, that's offensive. You may buy male and female slaves. No, absolutely not, right? From among, among the nations that are around you, you may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. That is that is, again, that is highly offensive to us. And again, it's exactly passages like this. Well, again, what do we do with these? It's exactly a passage like this that many people in the compromising churches and compromising church conferences right now, not to mention people outside the church, they look at a law like this and they say, you hypocrites, you don't follow this one. How can you pick and choose, you know, on adultery and homosexuality and some of these other ones? How can you pick to, to obey those but you don't obey this one? It's a double standard. Well, is it a double standard? That's a big question we need to answer in this series. And in order to answer it, we're going to have to get a bit of, a bit of context. And so we're going to work our way. We're not going to get to the slavery question today. I want to get to that next week. 
Because I don't want to just piecemeal answer all these questions. I don't want to just piecemeal answer questions about the Old Testament's treatment of women and about slavery and about some of these different controversial laws. I don't want to, I can't answer, I shouldn't answer those just piecemeal because it won't make sense. We've got to start from the ground up and we've got to build a foundation and have an understanding of the context of the Old Testament, how we're getting these laws. And then eventually we're going to get to some of those more difficult questions. And so uh, we need to get a little bit of a context for the laws. And so uh, here's the first thing we need to understand. When you and I go to the Bible, when we open this book up, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, we think of this as a devotional book. So I don't go to this book when I want to figure out uh, building code violations if I want to put a deck on the back of my house, if I want to build a new house, which, by the way, I would never do on my own, but those of you who are a little bit handy, you wouldn't go into this book to find building code stuff, would you? I don't go into this book if I want to figure out if I speed and they get in a construction zone here in Manitoba, how much is the ticket going to be? How many zeros am I going to have to add after that one or that two? I don't go into this book to figure that out, do I? Okay? And you go, well, duh, right? Like, duh, that's not what this book is for. This book is about God. This book is a book about devotions and spiritual things. Except, wait a minute, you have already stepped out of the context from 3,500 years ago when these laws were already written. Because the thing you have to first of all understand is that when God took the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses wrote the first five books, those books of the law, when God took the Israelites uh, out of Egypt, he had to give them a whole lot more than just a devotional book with spiritual things. Did you know that? See, we, we, we impose a modern context on it and then say, this doesn't make any sense. But 3,500 years ago, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, think of what happened. Overnight, God sends the 10 plagues on Egypt, and now he brings them out. Overnight, Pharaoh finally says, get out. And so they leave. And overnight, a nation is born out of nothing. Up to that point, they were just slaves in the Egyptian system. So Egyptian laws and Egyptian organization and governance and taxation, that's what they lived under. In one night, a nation is born out of nothing. Now here's the thing about nations. In order for a nation to function, it needs more than just a sense of right and wrong. Is that not true? It needs to have a sense of right and wrong, absolutely. But in order for a nation not to descend into utter chaos and anarchy, it needs a system of governance, it needs to be organized, it needs taxation, it needs criminal penalties, it needs building codes, it needs all of that, does it not? Right? Otherwise, all you have is, a, is, is anarchy. So the first thing that happens, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai. When we think of Mount Sinai, we only think of the Ten Commandments, which gives us our sense of right and wrong. Absolutely. That was very important. We'll talk about the Ten Commandments, uh, not this week, but in, in a different message. But um, certainly that was important. But when God gave Moses the law, he gave him more than just instructions about who God is and instructions about right and wrong. He had to give this baby nation, this fledgling nation, everything it needed at once. And so he gave the Israelites more than commandments about right and wrong. He gave them more than instruction about who God is. He gave them a whole host of laws to help them function as a nation. So he had to give them, for example, first group of laws I'll look at. And those of you who were here in that series uh, a number of years ago, you'll remember I, I went through these things before, but we'll just do them again. But the first uh, uh, set of laws that I'll talk about are the civil laws, okay? Now, when God gave the Israelites these civil laws, he was not, these civil laws were never intended for us living 3,500 years later in a totally different culture and time. 
This was because this nation needed organization right there. It, at that moment in time, they needed it. So he gave them a whole bunch of things like building codes and, and taxes and criminal penalties and agriculture. By the way, just talking about the criminal penalties for just a moment, people often read the Bible and they say, well, look, you Christians aren't advocating the death penalty because there's a death penalty for certain things and, and there's different things. Well, you, again, you're hypocrites because you don't... No, 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 no. The criminal penalties have nothing to do with us as Christians here today. We aren't the government. The church is different from the government now. God, though, had the Israelite nation was not a church. It was a nation. It also needed criminal penalties. Our government takes care of criminal penalties here in Canada. So no, no Christian in history, or at least they shouldn't be anyway, should be or most haven't advocating for the criminal penalties in the Old Testament. That's a different thing. It was for a specific country, a specific point in time. It's not something we have to apply today. So I'll show you an example. So this is one that I always use when I come to the civil laws. For example, let me show you Deuteronomy 22 verse 8. It's a building code law. And in, this, and, and in this one, God says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, that's like a railing, for your roof, that you may not bring the blood, guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands. Well, maybe I will. Show of hands, how many of you have put a railing around your roof? Okay. So, I don't see anyone. Okay. Oh, you're all just disobedient to the Bible, right? Well, somehow, how is it that we know? So people go, well, you don't obey this when you're a hypocrite. How is it that we know intuitively? We know intuitively by the spirit inside of us and by common sense there's something different about this law than the one that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Absolutely, we know there's a difference between those two laws. I'm just putting into words something that we already know deep down inside. God never intended this as a moral law. It's not like God in heaven is like, I hate murder, and I hate adultery, and ooh, I hate a house without a railing on the roof. <laughs> this has nothing to do with his character. This is a civil law because these people have just been taken out of Egypt. They need a whole host of laws to help organize them as a nation. And 3,500 years ago, in that culture and in that climate, they built their homes with flat roofs. That's just how it worked. And so uh, to get extra space, they would go up and use the roofs. And God said, I don't want people falling off these things left, right, and center and hurting themselves. This is God, the tenderness of God's heart. He includes the law. Actually, I want there to be reasonable precautions in terms of safety. But it has nothing to do with us having to have a railing on our house. God never intended this to be a rule for all people in all cultures everywhere. It's a very different kind of law from thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, and I will prove this more over time. But now you say, well, okay, so the civil laws... The criminal penalties, the building codes, the taxation doesn't apply to us. So that means I can, when I'm reading my devotions, I can cut large swaths of it out. No. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17 says this. Paul says in the New Testament, all scripture, all scripture. Now, time out for just a moment. Usually when we read this, we think of the New Testament. And it's true. Certainly, uh, now, it, the, it, this all scripture thing does include the New Testament. But when Paul wrote this, there was no New Testament. When he writes, all scripture is breathed out by God, yes, for sure, it includes the New Testament now. But when Paul wrote this, he wasn't thinking about the New Testament. It didn't exist. He was specifically thinking about the Old Testament. Think about that for a moment. As we see dozens and many churches and conferences, hundreds, 
that are basically chucking out the Old Testament. Paul said the Old Testament specifically is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. See, you can get a book from the library, and we should read good books. My wife and I just uh, ran a parenting cell this year. We just ended now for the summer, but we just ran a parenting cell uh, based on some really good materials we have in the library here about parenting. Very practical, very wonderful. It's amazing. We should read books like that. But you can read books that give you practical things that are easy to read that impact your life in terms of practical things, but there's only one book that is, that is breathed out by God, and that is for training in righteousness. There's only one book that as you spend years in it will keep you from compromise and will change you to have a disposition more towards holiness and God than other books can't do that. They might give you practical things to apply, but only one is God-breathed. And it's profitable for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Elsewhere, Paul says this, for whatever, and I could show you many New Testament passages, the New Testament authors had an incredibly high view of the Old Testament. For whatever was written in former days, again, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. And notice the word whatever, for whatever was written, all of it. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul said all of it, every single verse in there, even the weird stuff, all of it is God-breathed. It might be a tough nut to crack sometimes, and you might have days or weeks where you read it and it doesn't make any sense. But for those who chew on it, it's the only God-breathed words we have. And here he says, for whatever was written in former days, every single piece, we don't just cut out the stuff that we can't immediately apply to our lives. All of it is God-breathed, and whatever is written in former days is written for our instruction. He finishes by this, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, again, remember, he does not have a New Testament. Yes, it includes the New Testament now, absolutely 100%, but he is specifically, and I'm drawing your attention to the fact that he is thinking about the Old Testament. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Two things are mixed there that are going to do something powerful in your life. Two things. When you have endurance, when over time... You go through stuff in life and junk in life and hard stuff and you stay true to God and you endure and you don't quit and you don't give up and you don't get bitter. You mix that kind of endurance, you mix that with over time, not over a week, not over a period of months, but over a period of years. You mix endurance and not quitting in the Christian life with regularly meditating on the scripture, Old Testament as well even though sometimes you don't understand it, and even though some of it doesn't feel as applicable and you wish you could just go read a Christian book out of the library because it seems more applicable, but you actually take the hard nut to crack that's actually God's words and you submit to yourself to it. You don't just read it as a thing to get an intellectual learning, but you submit to it and say, God, I don't always understand it. I don't always get it, but I am submitting myself to your authority and I reverence these words and I'm going to get these words into me. Over time, you mix those two things, endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, including the Old Testament. And over time, what you will get is something called hope. Not a fleeting feeling of hope. Anybody and everybody in the world, you don't even have to have Jesus to have the occasional fleeting feeling of hope that lasts a day or a week or a couple of hours. But over time, you have endurance with the encouragement of the scriptures. These words are God-breathed. They do something to you you can't always understand when they get inside you and you meditate on them lovingly and you memorize them. You pray the ones that are in the Psalms. You meditate on the ones that are in the law. You, you receive promises out of the prophets or, whatever, or wherever. 
and you lovingly meditate on them over time and you spend time in them even when you don't get them and something happens over time that it actually gives, begins to give you a backbone called hope. It's not just a fleeting feeling. It's an overcoming faith that fuels you not to compromise, that makes you stand strong, that keeps your spiritual eyes open against deception. It's a powerful thing, but it comes through endurance and it comes over years and it comes through the scriptures. Those two things mixed together. And you can't get that from any Christian book, no matter how good it is. And so if we go back, I'll just go back to that example of the railing on the roof. You say, well, what do I do now when I get to a law like that in the Old Testament? Well, again, first of all, you don't need to feel guilty, and it's not hypocritical to realize the context of this. That was never intended for everybody. That was a civil law. But as I begin to meditate on this, you can meditate and say, Lord, I submit myself to your word even when I don't understand it. Is there anything you want to speak to me? There are a hundred different places he can take you that no library book can take you to. Because these are God-breathed words. And the first thing he begins to say to you is he says, I, I actually care about human life. And you begin to be ten, and you, and you just begin to think about that. What kind of a God is this? That he cares about things like that. And then you, he starts to apply, maybe you're a, a, a foreman on a construction site or a manager in a factory or whatever. And he starts to say, if I care about a railing around roofs because I don't want people unnecessarily hurt, are you being reckless? Or do you care about human life in whatever place you are in life? You don't think God will hold, I even think of like texting is, is, is the big thing MPI doesn't want us to do, right? And, and I, I love preaching stuff like this because it doesn't convict me because I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> but you think, oh, that's just a modern issue. The Bible doesn't speak to issues like that. You don't think being reckless, doing something that recklessly could endanger somebody else in terms of injuring them or hurting them or hurting themselves, you don't think that matters to God? This is the same God who said, put a railing around the roof of your house so you don't needlessly hurt someone. And of course I get, you know, sometimes in our culture, safety can be taken too far. I'm sometimes afraid that by the time my kids are all teenagers, they'll have to wear a life jacket and a helmet just to go outside, uh, or I'm going to get a bylaw ticket or something. Sure, it can be taken to extremes, but do we care? Railing around the roof, do we take reasonable steps? Do we care about the human life around us, the people around us, do we care? Because God cares about it. God cares about it. Think even of uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say I will never own an ox. I don't even know what it, what, really what it is. I know it's kind of a cow, okay? <laughs> so you read that. No muzzle an ox. Well, you pray about it. But just wait a minute. And now God just, the Holy Spirit starts to blow your mind. It's like, why am I reading this? I should be reading, you know, some practical Christian book about my parenting. That'll help me more. But you meditate because these are God-breathed words. Yes, I don't actually have to worry about this law. It's not like a moral command to me. But at the same time, it's a God-breathed word and there's stuff behind it. And suddenly I realize, I think, wow, this is the God who split the Red Sea and all these plagues and he made the whole universe, and he's got this messianic plan to bring Jesus to save the world, and in the midst of all that, he cares enough about the animals to make a law that says, you let your animals eat while they work. That is a stunning kind of God. And then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you, and he says, if I care about an ox, you don't think I'll take care of you in your situation? You think I care enough about an ox? I care enough about that detail. You don't think I'll take care of you in that situation? Or he convicts you as an employer, and he says, I wanted to make sure that ox, when he's working... He gets to eat out of what, out of, you know, he gets to enjoy some of the fruit of what he's working on. And now you're an employer and you've got people working for you and, and the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, are they getting to enjoy the fruit? 
You're, you're making it, you're, you're doing well for yourself. Are they doing well? Or are you muzzling them? Are you doing well at their expense? There's a hundred different places you can take that. All scripture is God-breathed. And in the long run, it might not give you the quick fix that a practical book will, will give you. And yes, we should read those practical books too. But in the long run, even when it's hard to understand, this is the one that will change your life. It'll give you backbone to stay, stay strong and keep you from deception and compromise. Well, so the civil laws. We don't have to obey them today, but there's lots there for God to speak to us. But there's more than just the civil laws. We're only going to get through a second one today, and we'll look at another two and then get into slavery and some of those next week. But there's other laws as well, and, and, and some of those would be things like you can't have two kinds of fabric in your, in your clothing, or you can't plant your fields with two kinds of seed. Uh, laws like that. And you go, what is the point? What, what are those about? Well, again, context. We can't impose our modern context on it. We saw already the civil laws. This nation was born out of nothing. They needed a group of laws just to keep them organized. They were never meant for us in that sense. But there's another group of laws in the Old Testament. Along, they're not the civil laws, but they're also not like do not murder and do not commit adultery. We intuitively know that, but they're different. Why are they different? Well, the thing you have to understand is that when God took the Israelites out of Egypt, this was not some random event. It was not just God flexing his muscles and I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and here we go. This was a very intense, it's all part of the big storyline of the Bible. And I talked about the big storyline over Christmas for a few weeks there. But the thing you have to realize is the whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis, the moment Adam and Eve sin, and then there's Genesis 3, the promise that God's going to bring the seed of a woman, a, a human being, born of a woman, is going to come and is going to reverse the effects of sin and save the world and, and save the whole world, all the nations of the world. And then after that, the Old Testament, we got this conflict between the forces of Satan and God's forces as Satan's trying to stop this Messiah from being born. This Egypt exodus thing is all part of that storyline. It's not just a random storyline that we read and we go, oh, I'm so encouraged, God can do miracles. Well, yes, we should be encouraged by that. He does miracles. But the exodus story is part of the messianic story. God is rescuing the people from Israel because they are descendants of Abraham. And God promised to Abraham, the Messiah is going to come from your descendants. So this is not just a random, I wanted to do some miracles and you can celebrate them. He is saving this group of people so that the Messiah can be born into the world so that all of us can be saved. Amen? So, but now, when you bring this nation of people out because you want the Messiah to be born through them, there's something really important. This nation can't, you can't just rescue them. Do you know how many nations have come and gone from the scene of history? Is anybody here a Prussian? Okay, is anybody here an Aztec or a Mayan? Okay, we don't. Many nations have come and gone from the scene of history. They just, they come onto the scene of history, they intermingle with the other nations, there's battles won and lost, and then those nations are lost. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he couldn't just have them disappear because they were this, the platform through which the Messiah was going to come. He promised it to Abraham. So when he rescued them, he couldn't just have them go out intermingle with the wicked nations around them, be just like them, and disappear from the face of the earth, and we have nowhere for the Messiah to come. So when he brought them out of Egypt, there was something really very important to God that you will see throughout the Old Testament. The moment I tell you this now, your eyes will be open to it as you read through the Old Testament, especially the books of the law, is that there is a huge theme of holiness and separation. Now, the thing you have to understand about the word holy is the word holy in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kadosh, actually means set apart. It has to do with being separated unto God, to be separate, to not be like everyone else. 
I'll read you just one verse, but the word appears almost 500 times in the Old Testament. But Leviticus 20, verse 26 is this. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, this is not just God being angry. He is holy. He himself is set apart. He's not like us. He's not touched by sin or mortality. He is utterly unique and holy and set apart. But now he brings them on. He says, in order for me to save the whole world, it's got to happen. This Messiah has to be able to come. It's all part of that messianic storyline to save the world and reverse this whole sin and brokenness thing that started with Adam and Eve in the garden. So when he brings this nation out, he says, I can't have you just disappearing in among the other nations. You must be separate. You must be separate. You must stay separate. Now, in the Old Testament, there are two ways that they were to be separate. The most important way had to do with righteousness and behavior. And those has to do with the moral laws, which we'll touch on next week. Um, but that had to do with they needed to, they, they, he didn't want them to be like the other nations in the sexual immorality and the violence and the ways that they lived. You must be separate in terms of your conduct. But then there's a second way throughout the Old Testament, especially the books of the law, that God said, it's so important to me that you be separate for the sake of the nations of this messianic storyline. In addition to your behavior, I'm going to put up extra fence guards around you to keep you separate from the Gentiles. God there's nothing wrong with multiculturalism today. I love Canada and, you know, in church and stuff. I love that we have tons of different groups. Even here in this church, we've got lots of people from other nations and different backgrounds. I love it. But the purpose for the Jewish people was to bring in the Messiah. They had to be separate from the Gentiles. It's opposite of multiculturalism. We have to have a very specific, separate kind of culture here for the Messiah to come. So God put up other laws to keep them separate. These laws did not matter to God as much as the do not murder and do not commit adultery. They were temporary laws meant to keep Jews and Gentiles separate. So some of these laws would be like circumcision, okay? It was an external marking to keep them separate, okay? But it's not that God in his heart is like, I really like people who are circumcised and I don't like people who are not circumcised. That never entered his mind. It's an external marking, the food laws. There is nothing immoral or moral about the different kinds of animals you eat. God does not like one person more because they eat pig or like them less because they don't eat pig or because they eat shrimp or they don't eat shrimp. It's about being separate. Okay? So he made a whole bunch of laws and said, I want you to be separate. Okay, now the thing is you say, well, uh, again, you're a hypocrite. You follow this one, but you don't follow that one. Well, as soon as we go to the New Testament, we see at the moment Jesus came, there was no longer any need for separation between Jew and Gentile. Paul explains this explicitly in Ephesians 2. Okay? So let's go to Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's people who are non-Jews, that's pretty much all of us here, um, but we do have uh, some people in our church who are Jewish background, which is awesome. But therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, so something happened with Jesus. So in the Old Testament, the non-Jews were separated from the Jews. That's what he just said. But now, something changed with Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who has he made one? Jew and Gentile. In the Old Testament, he made them two. Because of the Messianic storyline, he said, I can't have you mingling. It's not because I don't like Gentiles. 
The goal was always to save all the nations. I could show you a bunch of passages. The goal right to Abraham at the very beginning in Genesis 12 is, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. It was never because God didn't like non-Jews. But temporarily, in order to bring the Messiah to fruition in the world, he had to keep Jew and Gentile uh, separate. But now that Jesus has come, ha, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. Has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? Now how has he broken down the wall between Jew and Gentile? How has he done it? I'll tell you how he did it. By abolishing, there it is, the law of commandments. Now, stop. Some Christians don't know what to do with this passage. What they say is, this passage is proof that God threw out the whole Old Testament. Okay, so what you're saying is it's okay now for us Christians to murder. Obviously, it's not true. It's okay for us Christians now to not love our neighbors. You say, well, that's a New Testament command. No, it isn't. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is, Jesus was quoting the Old Testament when he talked about love your neighbor as yourself. So we know those laws are still there. Do not commit adultery. When Jesus died on the cross, it did not suddenly become okay to commit adultery. When Jesus died on the cross, it did not somehow become okay to lie or to steal or to cheat. We all know that. In fact, if anything, Jesus' death on the cross proves how seriously he takes those sins. It shows he hates them. That's why he had to die. His death on the cross did not somehow make sin okay. So then what on earth is Paul talking about that Jesus abolished the law of commandments? I'll tell you, he didn't abolish do not murder and do not commit adultery. I'll tell you what he abolished. The line before what I just pointed you to is the dividing wall of hostility. Those separation laws that were designed to keep Jew and Gentile separate. The moment Jesus died on the cross and rose again, all those dividing laws are gone because there's no need for them. The reason they came was just temporarily so that the Messiah could come to protect the, the Jewish nation. The moment Jesus came and died, there's no longer a reason to keep Jew and Gentile separate. Now, there's a whole other message there. God still has unique purposes for the nation of Israel in the end times, there's no question. But in terms of salvation, Jew and Gentile are now one. We're on equal footing. A Jew is not saved by being a Jew, and a Gentile is not unsaved because they're not a Jew. A Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus is not saved. A Gentile who doesn't believe in Jesus is not saved. A Jew who believes in Jesus is saved. A Gentile who believes in Jesus is saved. We're equal in salvation under Christ. So those laws are gone. They were temporary. So the civil laws, okay, they were never meant for us, even though we can learn lots because they're breathed out by God. The separation laws were temporary to bring in the Messiah. It's not hypocritical to disregard them in terms of our lives today. It's exactly what Paul teaches in the New Testament. They serve their purpose and they're gone. Now, I want to finish this message. We're going to move on next week and we'll talk about two more kinds of laws and we'll move into slavery and some of those difficult questions. But I really felt as I was praying, I said, Lord, how do I finish off this message now? And I want to finish off now with a devotional thought, an application for our lives. And... Uh, and the application I want to I bring is this. Just let's, let's have an application. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us as a church this weekend? Well, the application I just felt the Lord speaking to me about is this. A lot of Christians have, we've understood the separation laws part. We, we, we knew the food laws. Most of us don't follow those and all this sort of stuff. A lot of Christians have gone to a whole other level now which says now separation doesn't matter. So in the Old Testament, separation was a big deal. In the New Testament, separation is not a big deal. 
that would actually be a total misunderstanding of the Old and New Testaments. Actually, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that separation is a huge deal to God. It's just a different kind of separation. In the Old Testament, it was about separation between Jew and Gentile. In the New Testament, Paul says, that separation's gone. Jew and Gentile are one under Jesus. But separation from the ways of the world is still huge. And I know that because it's right in this book of Ephesians. Paul takes chapter 2 and he says, the separation between Jew and Gentile is gone. But then he spends two chapters, 4 and 5, and he says, but you better be separate from the world in your conduct. And so I want to just read you a few verses. In fact, I'm going to skip, Ken, we're going to skip right to chapter 5. I, I have to leave out chapter 4. There's a whole bunch there, but he spends two chapters. But I, I want to just read you this charge, and I'm just going to read you a chunk, and I want you just to receive it. Just listen to Paul teaching us here. Separation still matters. It's just the right kind. And he says this, this is the kind of life believers should live. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Listen to this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, here's the separation, at one time you were darkness, we were darkness, but now you are light in the, in the, in the Lord. There's supposed to be a separation of dark and lightness. There's supposed to be different. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but here's the application I want to leave with you, but instead expose them. Separation between Jew and Gentile is gone, but there's a new separation that really matters to God, and that is that we are light in a world of darkness, that we actually live and talk and think and act differently. And he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. When you have sin in your life, we need to expose that, not hide it. Bring it out and confess it. But you know what? There's another thing I want, and this is what I want to challenge us with today, and that is we as friends and as fellow cell members and family members in this church, when we see other Christians who are walking into unfruitful areas of darkness, we should have enough love to say, I want to expose that. I want to bring the light into that. And I want to share a story with you. Um, in closing, when I was, a lot, lot of years ago, I'm 40 next year. Do you know that? So some of you are going, you're old, and some of you are going, I said that to, you know, last night, and some of them went, I'm old. <laughs> that, the kid is almost 40, but anyway, um, I'm 40 next year. When I was 19, so that's a long time ago, I was at uh, Trinity Western University there in BC. It's a Christian university, and uh, it was my first year there, and I somehow latched on in the fall somewhere, to an obscure but very crass phrase. I won't even repeat it from up here on, on stage. Not a traditional swear word, which is how I subconsciously uh, kind of said this is okay, because it's not technically a swear word, but it was a crass phrase. And it was a very unique thing. It's not something people would normally say, and all the guys in the dorm laughed, and they loved it when I would say it. So I spent a few weeks saying this every now and then, and it kind of became my 
calling card to say this particular phrase, and everybody thought it was funny. And I thought it was funny, and it was just kind of fun. And I never stopped to think that actually this is a terrible thing to say, but you just, you know how when you get laughter and you just think this is okay and nobody says anything, then it's just okay. So we don't think about it, we just laugh about it. And then one day, I went to church, and, which I did every Sunday. I was going to Northview at that time there in Abbotsford, and the pastor there, he's dead now, but uh, the late uh, Pastor Vern Heidebrecht, man of God, loved him. And he preached a message on don't take the Lord's name in vain. And in that message, he also talked about uh, swearing and crass phrases. And he actually named a couple. And I'm sitting there in a pew with my buddies from the dorm. And he actually, from stage, named out this one obscure phrase, which you would almost never hear anywhere. But he actually named it right there. I mean, he didn't know what he was doing, but he just called me out. And I went 10, 11, 12 shades of red sunk down in my pew a little further, and I felt terribly embarrassed and awful. But you know, it's amazing. In that one moment, I've been doing this, I've been saying this word for a few weeks already, and somehow I never felt bad about it. The moment he spoke it, the moment he exposed the darkness, he just said it out loud and says, this is terrible. What is it that I didn't feel guilty before and the moment he said it, I knew? There's something about when we have the courage to step up and say, this is compromise, this is wrong, and we do it to our friends, we do it in ourselves, we do it in this church, in a loving way, but we just call it out and we expose the deeds of darkness. Powerful conviction hit me in that moment, I knew it was wrong. As I left, my buddies were all trying to downplay it. They were like, oh, he was too hard, that's legalistic, uh, you know, I don't think it's that bad, it's funny, and I stopped them right there, I said, he's right. And I never said it again. And I'm thankful to him for having the courage to say, this is darkness. This is darkness. But you know what? When we don't have courage, it can happen in a big church like this. When we don't have courage, a little compromise can happen here, a gray area there, and the next thing you know, you're just being carried along by this thing. And it just takes one person to in love say, absolutely, we'll have no part in darkness. Separation still matters to Jesus. And we should love Jesus and each other too much to let gray areas infiltrate our lives, our families, our small groups in this church. Amen? Amen. So we're going to pray, and, um, and then I'm going to dismiss you. And those of you who want, you can go to the prayer room after, but I'm just going to take a moment. We're just going to take a couple seconds. Lord Jesus, separation still matters to you. Is there any area of compromise you want to speak to us about here this morning? If there's anything in our lives where we've been fiddling around with a gray area, things we shouldn't be watching, things we shouldn't be drinking, things we shouldn't be saying, would you just reveal that in our lives? Things we're dabbling with, Lord Jesus, would you call them out in us? And Lord, if there are friends we have in this church, if there's people in this church that we need to lovingly talk to, would you give us the courage, Jesus? I thank you for what you're going to do, Lord. We want to be a church of light. We want to be separate in the right ways. Thank you for breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But we do want to be separate from darkness. Fill us with your spirit and enable us to do that. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.